came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Jason. Hey, Sonia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Very good. Yeah, the term is over, right? For you. Uh, it's close close to over. We're just yeah, just having like final hand-ins and presentations and all that. Oh, nice. Cool, cool. Yeah, I mean, we kind of, we are back after Easter for another month, but generally it's over. Um, mm. But you know what? I'm, so I'm, I'm going um, on a break, right? Over Easter. And so I've been planning my, my reading. Um, <laughs> my reading Interesting. is important. Okay. That's know. always the important thing. And we, we know when we go away, we have to bring like a suitcase of books, right? Uh, Kindle has been invented. Um, I'm sorry to drop this on you like that. <laughs> well, that's a smart. That's a smart thing. But I, I don't know. I just, I can't get into it. I mean, at home I read like real books, but when I travel, um, you know, I need Kindle because I, I that's read smart. like ten books a week, right? There's yeah. no way I can carry that. Um, I'll, I'll need like a helper <laughs> to carry <laughs> to carry my books. But anyway, so um, the reason I was telling you about. My reading list is because I have a suggestion for your reading list, obviously, <laughs> for okay. your Easter reading list. Okay, go on. So, th- there is this book. It's it's a Russian book, which I think it came out in like 2006, you know, mid-2000s, long time ago anyway. And mm-hmm. I read it when it just came out. I was, pff, what, at the university then. Um, and it, it, I loved it. absolutely loved it because it was really funny. And it's by this guy called... Um, uh, Vladimir Sorokin, um, and so he, he, that the, the novel that he wrote is called The Day of a Prichnik, and it's set in 2028, and it's really kind of funny dystopian novel about Russian future. Mm. And so I've just learned um, a couple of days ago that it was translated into English, and so I think you would love it okay. because strangely and kind of unfortunately, I don't know, weirdly, Sorokin is basically a fortune teller, right? So he, yeah. he predicted the future. Um, so the book like is actually, literally, seriously, okay. like I, I freaked out when I I just saw a review in English and I, right. I just remembered about it. So basically, you know, the book is in 20, set in 2028 and it's about sort of Russian future, right? And Russia kind of becomes this country where... Um, it sort of exists in two parallel worlds almost, right? Where um, it's based on futuristic technology, but also it's kind of grounded in like this medieval barbarity, right? And so Mm. Russia in 2028 is walled off from Europe completely. And of course, there is a Tsar now, you know, so the Tsar Mm. has been restored. Um, And it completely deport, kind of um, depends on its gas exports and also it depends on China. It's right. because China now rules the world in 2028. Um, and so... <laughs> it's all a bit close to reality. <laughs> I know, right? And so uh, the, the day of Aprichnik, the name. So Aprichniki, they um, they were like um, kind of henchmen for Ivan the Terrible. 
Right. Um, and they were basically these like guys who were just absolutely pitiless in the way that they enforced everything that Ivan the Terrible wanted them to enforce. So it's it, you know it's a it's a historical name, historical term, um, and you know the Aprichniki were kind of known for like murder and torture, you know, and like mm. extortion kind of theft. So anyway, kind of rings true, doesn't it? Yeah, that's frightening. But um, oh, no. I'm gonna check it out. Thanks for the wreck. Yeah, so please do. And I also, I just wonder how this writers, you know, how, like, you know, Parable of the Soul was so yeah. similar to what's been happening in a couple of years. Ah, so many dystopian novels. How? How do, how do these authors know? I don't know. Or is it just an obvious result of a kind of particular system of oppression? I don't know. As we continue to explore radical ways of approaching research and practice with emergent scholars this season, we have often discussed the importance of developing a critique of power in our work and also in our relationship. Um, and one manifestation of power is how it can be used to dominate and exploit others. In other words, the foundation of an oppressor-oppressed dynamic. So we want to have a discussion about how to oppose oppression today. To help us do that, we are so pleased to welcome to the show lawyer, scholar, and advocate, Dr. Maira Irigarai. Maira is a PhD in geography and a human rights and environmental lawyer, who's worked um, as a, both as a lawyer and an advocate for indigenous people's rights in the Amazon. Her work as a scholar and advocate is focused on advancing indigenous people's rights through nonviolent resistance and policymaking, community organizing, empowerment, and the protection of the Amazon rainforest. She's currently working at the Environmental Investigation Agency as the Latin America Policy and Research Analyst. Welcome, Mayer. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amy and Jason, for having me here today. I am a big fan of podcasts. Yay! Um, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Brendan Brown is uh, one of my favorites. Um, so, inspired by her, I'd like to start by sharing a little bit of my story. Um, since I think it's fundamental to, you know, to answer to some of the questions you're probably going to have. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome. Welcome. We, we, we would love to hear. We would love to hear your story. We've been actually this season, we've been kind of asking people about their journeys because it's just so interesting. You know, before we would just dive right into the kind of mm. nitty gritty of disasters and research. Um, so, and I, I know that you have spent um, quite a bit of your adult life um, engaged in the struggles of indigenous peoples in the, in the Amazon for social and environmental justice. Um, and so, yeah, we, we really want to, to, to learn more about this and kind of about your life and the kind of work um, and your collaborations and studies there. Okay. So, um, yeah, as I said, I have to start with uh, my story because my story is really a huge part of who I am, and it doesn't really begin with me like anybody else's story. <laughs> my roots are indigenous, and when part of my family migrated from Luxembourg to Brazil, they settled in the state of Mato Grosso, where my great-grandfather, um, Carlos Uguine, was born, and later he married an indigenous woman from an unknown tribe who became my great-grandmother. Lija Guinea, um, also known as Dida. Dida is uh, life in English. Um, later, she gave birth to my grandmother, who raised 11 children, and among them, um, my uncle, Clavis Irigaray, an artist who recently passed, uh, and whose work portrayed the paradox of the insertion of indigenous people into civilized society through his paintings and drawings, 
And my father, um, Carlos Teodoro Irigaray, an environmental law professor who dedicated his entire life to advocate for the environment and traditional population. So, you know, some of my earliest and most cherished memories involve tagging along with my activist father as he visited the Savanti tribal community in my hometown. And the, the endless time I spent with my mom uh, at the Karashas Indigenous People with the Karashas Indigenous People at the Bananao Island, which mm. is the largest river island in the world located in the middle of Araguaia in Mapuroso. And so um, I was really heavily involved in this environment where both of my parents taught me early on that nature must be respected and that mm. the self-determination of all people is an inalienable right worth fighting for. And then, you know, I started working with environmental nonprofits at the age of 13, I mean, mm-hmm. which uh, you could do in wow. Brazil back then. <laughs> Even now, I think you could possibly do it. Amazing. And by the time I, I finished uh, my master's, I mean, there's, there's lots of story in between, but let's just skip to the juicy part. <laughs> um, <laughs> by the time I finished my master's, I knew exactly what I wanted who I wanted to work with. Um, and the, the Belamonte Hydroelectric Dam was at the time on the process of being proposed. Mm. And I spent the first 10 solid years of my career giving my blood and sweat to stop its construction. Mm. And later uh, on to make it very expensive for the companies involved. Um, and I just want to put a side note here for those who, who don't know about the Belamonte Dam, but this is the third largest dam in the world that was mm. built in the heart of the rainforest uh, with many, many, you know, social and environmental problems. Um, and that was a project from the time of dictatorship that they reproposed uh, and went ahead with. Uh, so mm-hmm. the first year that I worked uh, with the Belmont Dam, uh, I was working as a lawyer at the Inter-American Association for Environmental Defense helping to take the case to the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights uh, with another three lawyers. And then the following years uh, was pretty much doing hardcore nonviolent activism at the uh, at Amazon Watch. And uh, I remember my boss was like, uh, what? Because she wanted for me to keep working as a lawyer, but I just realized, you know, I know I, I want to do something else because I didn't see law really changing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this particular case, uh, especially in Brazil where, you know, going around a lot is so easy. Um, so for me at Amazon Watch gave me the space to, to do what I thought it could change something. Uh, and by hardcore nonviolent activism, I mean occupations, protests, mm. helping public prosecutors to build cases against the companies, making a splash on the press, uh, creating social media action. And supporting in every way I could the initiatives from local communities. So for me, the Shingle River, where the dam was being built, really changed my life. I mean, I consider it to be my river. Um, I, I cried navigating that river. That river moved uh, every cell in my body to like do something. Where I was amazed by this river, and I, I, yeah, it, that river was huge part of my life and my life choices mm. uh, and, and the amazing people I mean amazing people 
or I met there uh, uh, in the human and environmental injustices I witnessed combined with the actions taken with the people and for them gave me really a new sense of who I was and what I really what really mattered to me as a human being. So mm-hmm. it was during one direct action on the Shingu that I got to meet the Minuruku people uh, and witness their fearless commitment. And the Minuruku people were the people that I, I talk about in my dissertation um, mm. as a geographer. And so I, and let's you know, stop here to say the day that we met was literally by far the most vivid and memorable day of my career. Mm. We occupying one of the Shingu Coffer Dams surrounded by 200 uh, warriors and digging a hole on dirt road blocking the river until our hands were bleeding just mm. to watch the river run free through this canal we dig once mm. more. And and when we did it and the water went through, everybody was crying and screaming and it was so intense. I mean, the ecstasy of that moment was completely indescribable. Um, I remember this fisherman that I absolutely love who lost everything because of the Balamonte Dam and he, he kept on screaming, I'm so happy, I'm so happy because you know, we saw the river running free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I had many friends at the time who couldn't understand why I was so committed to what they considered to be a lost cause. Mm-hmm. But for me, it wasn't about the cause itself. Um, it, it was, you know, about the whole story. You know how people say that the Amazon rainforest are the lungs of the world? Um, I don't think that's entirely mm-hmm. true. I, we don't even say that in the Amazon. The Amazon is the heart. It's pumping the water, you know, to Mother Earth. Uh, it's creating rain. I mean, we have flying rivers. What better mission could I possibly have uh, than to support protecting and healing the heart of Mother Earth? And how could I even do that without acknowledging indigenous people's value at work? This is, for me, it's what I live for and stand for, more humanity, more compassion, more respect and, and love. I mean... For me, only only love can heal. So, Myra, we've had um, a few different geographers on the show before, and we often get to discussing how injustice and inequality are spatially distributed across geographies. Um, and this is kind of an emerging theme in, in disaster research. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about your research into geographies of resistance and also how anti-oppressive theory shapes your approach to your work. Sure. Uh, let's start with geographies of resistance, since not a lot of people have heard about this terminology. Mm. I mean, when people ask me what I have done with my geography PhD and I start talking about resistance and social movements, they all look quite surprised, like, <laughs> these things are not geography, <laughs> as they know. Um, so, <laughs> I know, they're thinking maps, and that's yeah. not what I did. <laughs> so, in my studies, <laughs> geographies of resistance, it's really what provides a spatially grounded approach to examine contention and social movement formation. 
whether resistance is an act of transgression, like crossing borders, or mm. opposition, such as constructing barricades, or everyday endurance, uh, stay in place. These are geographies where space is constitutive of the social. Mm. So geographies of resistance, uh, therefore, introduce new possibilities to define resistance, while offering insights on exploring, in my case, both Munduruku movements and their social and political nuances. Now, to answer to the second part of your question, I'll start by quoting Leslie Brown and Susan Strega when they say that anti-oppressive research is social justice and resistance in process and in outcome. Okay, let, let's go back to that because this is really important. Mm-hmm. Anti-oppressive research is social justice and resistance in process and in outcome, which are both essential to my work. Mm-hmm. So, to explain to you how I got there, I need to tell you another story. Yes. <laughs> I'm a big fan of stories. <laughs> so, so, when I was starting my research at University of Florida, I really struggled to find a way to explain where I was coming from with my mm-hmm. ideas, my behavior. And often, professors and colleagues have called my attention due to my quote-unquote activist tone <laughs> and bias. Right. right. And so... Coming from the activist background, uh, I told you guys about, I did struggle to shape my identity as a researcher, mm-hmm. and often I really felt out of place for many reasons. I even had some professors saying that they didn't think I was going to be able to finish my yeah. PhD. Wow, yeah. um, and so, you know, um, for me, and the, the reason why I felt so out of place is, first of all, I'm committed to post so my work is not a bias, period. I, I, I need to start with that. I, mm. I really care and love the people I work with, and I would never want to harm them or take advantage of the trust they have put in me uh, for the sake of, of research. And second, I couldn't find a methodology that spoke to me completely because all of the positive positivist methods I came across didn't seem a good fit for me mm. to develop this work on the Minutaku and their resistance movement. I always knew I would never be an analytical, impartial, <laughs> positivist mm. researcher. Yeah. And lastly, I also struggled with the idea of ownership over knowledge because where I came from, knowledge is to be shared freely among everyone and not to be sold or monetized. So those things were a real struggle for me during my PhD. Mm. Um, when I wrote my first version on this work, you really not knowing how to address my methodology, I try to fit uh, what I do into the methods commonly used by people in my field, and it, it wasn't good. I mean, mm. it was a disaster. <laughs> um, and it was only when I was working on my second version, uh, and I want to like to just stop here and go back a little bit. Between working on my first and second version, I did my field work, right? Yeah. And I had said I was going to do something because my professors wanted to hear that methodology. Um, hmm. And I took classes on methodology in the geography department, and they had nothing on anti-oppressive methods or yeah. decolonizing methods, nothing on it. Uh, my professors uh, never mentioned it. And so I really went <laughs> to my field saying I was going to do something, and I did something else because I did what I thought I should do. <laughs> yeah, and cool. how I should mm. do it. Um, 
I just didn't know how to explain to them that that was the way I was doing things and mm-hmm. in a way that made sense to them. So my first and second version happened after this field work. And so first version I wrote trying to fit what I did into the method that they were expecting and it wasn't good at all. And then the second version, I came across this book edited by Leslie Brown and Trenga that I just quoted called Research mm-hmm. as Resistance, Critical Indigenous and Anti-Oppressive Approaches. And it was suddenly, it was like I, I was striking by a light and I was so excited reading this book because I felt like they were describing me and my work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of a sudden I wasn't out of place anymore. I was completely misunderstood. And my biased activist way of doing work, focusing so much in social justice, has a name and a method. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited to tell this to other people <laughs> who might be just as lost as I was. Uh, this explains uh, what I did and backed me up as a researcher, and it's called anti-oppressive research. Mm. So being an anti-oppressive researcher means Everything that I have described so far is to commit to social justice, to become an active part of the change, to have a political action purpose with your research, to be committed to the people you work with personally and professionally, and to pay very close attention and change how power relations work on research processes and through them. So, Cotton mm-hmm. Brown suggests that an anti-oppressive researcher needs to be an activist for social justice. Because good intentions aren't enough. That mm-hmm. there is a fundamental difference between a research on social justice from promoting social justice with one's research. So anti-oppressive research sees all knowledge as a social construct and as such, the truth is created and currently shaped by neoliberal context. Yeah. Therefore, mm-hmm. proving or disproving the truth is not the goal of this anti-oppressive uh, research. Instead, the search for meaning and for understanding, for insights that can enable resistance and change are the main focus. Yeah. For me, it really came down to how could I be truthful to my research and the Maduro people without building a meaningful relationship with them? How could mm-hmm. I measure their pain and struggle with positive methods that disregarded their worldview and which is completely different from others? And so for me, it was really game changer uh, in, in the way I did my work. This is so great. And you know, through the season, um, this thread of not being able to access, you know, through our research training, um, the discussion about anti-oppressive theories, anti-oppressive research, um, about theories of decolonization and methodologies for um, decolonizing research, uh, they come so strongly. And it's just so wonderful to hear from so many researchers, um, you know, kind of exploring this and talking about it and being brave enough to almost go against, I guess, the supervisors, you know, yeah. and their professors, um, and to just pave their own path. It's it's fantastic, you know. I uh, you you all inspire me so much, you know. I wish um, I had 
the balls to do that you know when i was doing my phd uh, mine was totally positivist and um, i regret that but, you know <laughs> now i've grown up um anyway um <laughs> uh, no I, i i totally hear you and and um i actually i'm super super thankful to my advisor at the time because i mean if it was up to me i had finished my phd in three years and she mm. really pushed <laughs> all of mm. my buttons to dig deeper and if it wasn't for that you know two extra years uh, mm. i would never be able to get the final result i got um mm. so uh, yeah she 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 knew what she was doing i guess <laughs> amazing and yeah that that that's that so nice to hear and but let, let's go back to to your research you know and talk a little bit more about kind of practical application of your theoretical uh, approach. And also, thank you so much for sharing your thesis with us. Um, I'm really looking forward to kind of getting much deeper into it. I only had an opportunity to skim through it. Um, so how did you hope or how do you hope that your intellectual endeavors um, would contribute to organize an effort? You know, what does um, your anti-oppressive theory means for the indigenous people in the Amazon? You know, and how do you actually put this in action? Well, when I started this work, I, I don't think I knew the final result uh, would be and how important it would be. I mean, I, I knew I wanted to contribute to the Mundurupu people, their movement efforts. And since there's very little written by them um, about them beyond the great literature, I wanted to put together something meaningful. But I think mm. I was able to accomplish a lot more than that. Um, some, I'm really happy I was. Um, <laughs> I have uh, tried in my dissertation to do justice by them and their resistance as an indigenous nation who has fiercely stood up not just for their territory and rights, but for the Amazon rivers and for environmental and social justice. Their resistance efforts inspired me to carry on this research for many reasons. Um, first, because of my indigenous ancestry that I told you guys about. Second, because of their noble work I came to accompany over the years since we met in 2012. And then third, because I believe in social movements, you know, I, I do believe that social movement theorists have done too little to address and recognize that social movement theory is not enough to account for indigenous resistance. And indigenous resistance is a huge part of society right now. Um, you know, so although the scholarship in social movements was vast, some new forms of resistance did not fit into the model described in the literature thus far, especially considering, you know, this growing political and social tension in the world. So for indigenous people, such research was critically important, especially considering their struggle against the veracity of capital and this predatory and aggressive exploitation that occurred mainly in the agricultural mm -hmm. frontier zones. Therefore, when navigating this process, I realized that To be fruitful to the political resistance, I would need to look at them through the lenses of decolonizing methodologies and indigenous resistance studies. So I think that my first big contribution was this hybrid theoretical framework that I created mixing social movement theory and indigenous resistance studies. Um, with this framework, I really aim to leave behind a contribution to other indigenous movements and to indigenous resistance studies of something mm -hmm. that could perhaps 
be applied to them and should be further developed and hopefully further developed by them. Mm. Um, the way I bridge the gap really helps to advance social movement studies towards embracing indigeneity, uh, their ways of life, and their cosmology. Indigenous struggles are not just happening in the Amazon. They're happening everywhere. Indigenous social movements are spreading around the world and their fights are usually named the struggle for place, space, identity. So as a geographer, I think we can, we can really play a vital role in advancing the rights of indigenous people towards differential geography. Um, I am pleased also to leave behind a work that has their voice imprinted there, their stories in a recollection of memories laws that I'm sure will be a helpful tool for them in many levels. Now, more specifically on the policy level, my research aims to contribute to the advancement of the national policy that recognizes the International Labor Organization, the ILO 169, and mm -hmm. its applicability to procedures for ensuring indigenous rights that recognizes and upholds indigenous culture and practices. So it's very important to highlight that in Brazil, a proposal to denounce the ILO uh, Convention 169 is currently being discussed in Congress, which implies its uh, repels and increased pressure to reduce indigenous areas in the Amazon. Similar situations I know happen in different countries, and so that is why I believe it is critically important to conduct policy-relevant research that supports worldwide campaigning in relation to indigenous communities, given the nature of the problems and the fact that tensions caused by infrastructure development have placed many cultures at the edge of disappearance, like the Munduruku people. Mm -hmm. um, so while my research was really a case-based study, the results aimed to make an influence on the global scale, first because it really contributes to indigenous resistance studies and provide answer to questions involved, involving indigeneity struggles, such as autonomy, uh, understanding autonomy outside of these anti-capitalist and outer globalization movements and discourses, it's really essential to understand indigenous people's search for self-determination. And second, because even though the issues in the Amazon can appear local to most people, it and in this, you know, ever-evolving and interconnected planet, what happens in the Amazon doesn't stay in the Amazon. And we know mm -hmm. that. Its impacts have serious consequences for the world, and so addressing the key issues and actors is necessary for the global community. Now, to answer to the second part of your question, when working with indigenous people in the Amazon, you can use anti-oppressive theory by making sure to use their voice in your work and at least combining decolonizing methods with positivist methods. Uh, but, you know, to be honest, I don't even think positivist methods should be used at all when working with indigenous people because they are too limited and they do not encompass indigenous people's worldview. Um, and so I think the, re the final result is always limited. Um, and I also think that in practice, these means to let go of much of your personal expectations and to mm -hmm. 
give way more than a few months of field work to develop your research. So it's not for everyone. I get it. Um, you know, I, I did, you know, not even a month of field work, but my work is not a result of a month of field work. My work mm-hmm. is a result of over 10 years of relationship I have built with them. You know, mm-hmm. that's more than hundreds of times I, I spend time in their lands and um, talking with them, sleeping there, doing actions with them. So it, it is a result of a relationship that was built over the years. Um, and, you know, at the end, I do think that we need to, as scholars, to do is to encourage and give space for Indigenous people to develop research in their lands themselves. Um, in the future, you know, hopefully it doesn't need to be me an outsider, even though I'm so close to them. I'm an outsider. Um, mm-hmm. They should be encouraged to study, to do their research in their own way. I think a lot of what you're saying is echoing um, different different uh, visitors we've had on the podcast this season. Um, the the way that you all are challenging different theoretical approaches so deeply is inspiring. I hope um, to our listeners because, like you've pointed out, this sort of philosophical incompatibility between Western approaches um, to survival almost right and it's like Mm -hmm. the way that we're doing the way that we're undertaking research is so limited and we're and we have students who are going through doctoral programs and not even um being exposed to alternatives to positivism Mm -hmm. and like like deeply at the at the philosophical root of that it's it's about different ontologies and epistemologies and Mm. positivist ontology is incompatible with the way that indigenous peoples see the world. I love the way that you have framed these issues and articulated your answers and the way that that you're just taking action on this. And um, we really admire what you're doing. And thanks for for coming to speak to us today, Myra. Thank you guys for the opportunity. I hope to inspire other students to dig deeper. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Senia, Jason, and me, Maidi Bigaray, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.